Well, there's nothing quite like the smell of an October rally when asset prices surge, ringing up the tally. Commodities, crypto, crude, copper, and stocks, everything's rising except those gold rocks. Who needs rocks when risk is back in style? With pumpkin spice and apples, it's been a little while since investors ignored the walls of worry and started buying up assets like they're in a hurry. Earnings look strong and retail sales held firm, yet consumer sentiment is tanking. That should make us squirm. Supply chains are messy. We can't get enough chips. Apple says its new iPhone sales are headed for a dip. Oil prices topped an eight-year high, and the Fed says the time to taper is drawing nigh. Still, momentum is back, so onward we press. But we stay humble, we stay focused, right here on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard and hello again to Ameriprise Financial. Thanks for your sponsorship. Ameriprise Financial provides personalized, goal-based financial advice that can help you navigate today while staying on track of your long-term financial goals tomorrow. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see how confident you are about the advice you are receiving. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Well, the S&P 500 is coming off its best week since July, closing at its highest level in a month. Strong earnings reports from big banks outweighed more cross currents in the high seas of the global economy, and the buyers rushed in. U.S. retail sales for September came in much stronger than expected, but consumer sentiment for October hit its lowest level since 2011. Weekly jobless claims continued to decline, hitting pandemic-era lows last week, but the jobs turnover rate also neared record highs as 4.8 million people straight up quit their jobs in August. Inflation soared again in September, with prices rising 5.4% from a year ago. Are you ready for some sticker shock? Gasoline prices up 42%, used cars 24%, bacon up 19%, eggs 13%. It's the perfect storm of intense consumer demand compared to a year ago. Supply chain madness as the nation's largest ports are stuffed with cargo ships waiting to unload and spiking energy prices. But investors may be starting to see daylight again after weeks of poor visibility. An advisory panel to the FDA approved the use of booster vaccines from Johnson & Johnson and Moderna for at-risk individuals last week. And the U.S. is dropping travel restrictions for international visitors next month. Consumers are remaining resilient and the personal savings rate is still near record highs, while loan delinquencies remain low and so is credit card debt, relatively speaking. That's all good news for stocks. While U.S. stock markets snap back towards their record highs again, technical analysts remind us to consider timeframes and relative performance during times like these. Our buddy J.C. Peretz at All Star Charts points out, the average NASDAQ stock fell 30% this year. Half of the NASDAQ stocks fell 20% this year. That's a bear market. And over 20% of NASDAQ stocks got cut in half. So it's all relative. For all you chart lovers out there, look at the Value Line Geometric Index. It represents the median stock price change for 1,700 listed stocks across U.S. and Canadian indexes. It is basically at the same levels where it was to start the year. Individual stocks and sectors have been getting bounced around all year, but the big indexes, well, they keep rolling higher. All you passive index investors out there have been enjoying the ride. Hey, you know where else equity markets have been cooking? That's right, India, the best performing global stock market on the planet right now. As of last Thursday, India's benchmark S&P BSE Sensex Index was up 28% this year, and the Nifty 50 Index was up 31%, both closing at record highs. 
pit those gains against the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is down nearly 2% so far this year, while the S&P 500 has gained 18%. India is rising, and an investing revolution is underway in that country as more households are shifting from cash, gold, and real estate into stocks, bonds, and crypto. We're going to dive into that phenomenon in a later episode, but check out the Wall Street Journal's article on India and the growth of mutual funds that dropped over the weekend. It's fascinating. How about you? How are you feeling? Well, according to our latest reader survey of our 1.5 million newsletter subscribers, you're feeling kind of cautious. 45% of those surveyed say they are a little to extremely worried about the stock market right now. 34% believe the U.S. stock market will experience a significant drop in the next three months. That's up 10 percentage points for May and reflects the growing anxiety investors are feeling about the stock market given recent volatility and mixed signals in the economy. The number one concern among our readers is the continued supply chain disruptions that are leading to product shortages and higher prices. More than half of our readers believe those disruptions will have a significant impact on their investment returns. Supply chain worries topped inflation, more government spending, and the spread of COVID-19 variants as their top concern. As for bubbles, our readers identified cryptocurrencies and the U.S. real estate market as the frothiest, followed by stocks, SPACs, NFTs, and commodities. While prices and valuations are high across nearly all asset classes right now, the surge in commodity prices, like coffee, crude, oil, and cotton, may have the biggest impact on consumer spending going forward. And as we know, consumer spending drives around 70% of U.S. GDP. As for cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, the stampede is on. Bitcoin tops $62,000 and is nearing all-time highs again as the SEC is set to approve the first Bitcoin exchange-traded fund, which could begin trading as soon as this week. ProShares filed plans last Friday to launch its Bitcoin strategy ETF. That paves the way for several others to follow over the next few weeks as the SEC considers additional proposals made in August by asset managers like Valkyrie Investments, Invesco, and VanEck. New ETF proposals are subject to a 75-day SEC review period. If regulators don't object, the funds are considered cleared for trading. Today, Monday, marks the end of the review period for the ProShares Fund. And as I speak these words, the SEC does not seem to be holding up a stop sign. A quick refresher, an exchange-traded fund, or ETF as we call them, is an investment that tracks the price of a basket of underlying assets and is tradable on U.S. stock exchanges. In this case, the funds would track the price of Bitcoin futures traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange rather than Bitcoin itself. So these funds won't actually hold Bitcoins. Instead, they'll invest in what we call Bitcoin futures, which trade separately on regulated U.S. exchanges like the CME. Keep in mind, the SEC and other regulatory agencies do not have jurisdiction over crypto trading ventures, at least not yet. We know Chair Gary Gensler thinks they need to be regulated if they're going to sell tokens to investors, but crypto futures are a step removed from the tokens themselves, and they are traded through regulated exchanges like the CME. While the SEC hasn't approved exchange-traded funds that hold Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies directly, and the agency has indicated that it won't happen unless and until it has more oversight. But make no mistake about it. Crypto trading and investing is here for both institutional and retail investors, and regulators need to catch up. We're going to talk a lot more about that in a few minutes with the Fed's new Chief Innovation Officer. 
Let's get set up for another busy week ahead. Earnings season will pick up some speed as the financials continue to lead the parade, starting with State Street on Monday, followed by BNY Mellon on Tuesday, with Northern Trust, Discover, and Citizens Bank reporting on Wednesday. Last week, big banks impressed with J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Charles Schwab, and others beating analyst estimates on strong performance from investment banking and advisory divisions. And that trend is likely to continue. Rates are rising, and that's good for net interest margins, the protein that drives bank profits. Widely held stocks, IBM, Intel, Netflix, Tesla, and others will also report results this week. Tesla holds a lot of Bitcoin in its treasury, so rising prices are good for its balance sheet, and the electric vehicle maker already beat estimates for sales last month. As for Netflix, investors want to know what the company plans to do with the lightning in a bottle it has captured with Squid Game. Speaking of games, Netflix bought a gaming studio last quarter amid a broader push into the video game industry. What's next for that business, and what are the plans for the rollout of the Raw Doll catalog Netflix recently purchased? It was its most expensive content purchase ever. On the economic front, the U.S. housing market will be front and center. On Tuesday, we'll get an update on U.S. housing starts and building permits, which impacts the available inventory of housing on the market. They're expected to have continued to rise in September after a 3.9% increase in August, but not enough to meet demand, which has kept prices elevated. Freddie Mac reported mortgage rates climbed to their highest level since April and projected they will continue to rise. Those high prices are also weighing on consumers. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index indicated that home buying sentiment fell to its lowest level since September of 1982. New entrants into the public markets keep popping up, and WeWork is topping the list. The office-sharing real estate company that fell from grace in 2019 is expecting to merge with a SPAC this week that values the company at $7.9 billion. That's a far cry from the $50 billion it was once valued at in its heyday. Listeners can check out the episode we did with my friend Maureen Farrell, who chronicled the rise and fall of WeWork and its former CEO and founder, Adam Newman, to learn more about its complicated history. The big question mark for investors and WeWork's backers, what is the future of office sharing in a post-pandemic world? Global cryptocurrency market topped $2 trillion in market capitalization earlier this year, and it's headed to $5 trillion in the next five years, according to some projections. Institutional investors, credit card companies, online brokers, and even some financial advisors are offering access to crypto to their clients and their customers already. The horse has left the barn. That puts regulators and central bankers in an interesting predicament, given that there's no real regulation of the cryptocurrency market. The Federal Reserve has been talking about the need and the inevitable adoption of some form of digital currency, and it's supposed to be publishing a report on that any day now. One of the architects of that report and the Fed's thinking about a digital future is Sunanya Tuteja, the first chief innovation officer at the Federal Reserve in its history. Sunanya comes from the private sector, from the world of online brokers, actually, where she most recently worked as the head of digital assets and crypto at TD Ameritrade, now owned by Schwab. I interviewed Sunanya last week for the Society of Advancing Business News Editing and Writing Fall Virtual Conference. This is an excerpt from that conversation. Hi, Caleb. Delighted to be here. Thank you. It's so good to have you here. First of all, tell us about your role at the Fed. You are the first chief innovation officer there. That's such a cool title. What are you doing there? Yeah. So first of all, I was reflecting on this. I think intentionally or unintentionally are starting a little bit for trend because every time I take on a new assignment, 
it just so happens my first public event is with Caleb and Investopedia, which is delightful given, you know, I am an avid consumer of the Investopedia content. So thank you again for this opportunity. Yes. So this is an inaugural role as a chief innovation officer of the Federal Reserve System. Now coming into this, you know, when I first was approached about this role, I chuckle. I was like, wait, you know, first of all, I thought it was one of my Bitcoin friends pulling a prank on me, you know, about me working at the Fed. I'm like, wait, what's going on? But when I realized, no, no, this is legit. My next question was, wait, innovation and central banking? Isn't that a bit of an oxymoron? Because as you know, I've spent the last decade in the private sector at this nexus of finance, technology, and policy, really trying to put frontier technologies into commercial products and services within the finance world. And so working with regulators and policymakers has been an important component of that trifecta because, you know, when you're building new things that are still in their infancy, I'm a pilot, as you know, so the analogy I use is it's like building your plane while you're flying a plane, So, which is a bit of an adventure. So bringing along and working with your policymakers and regulators is important. So, you know, that was really my vantage point. Now, coming into the Fed, I'm happy that, you know, my perceptions were wrong, that I call it the notion of decentralized innovation is already pervasive, right? So there's innovation happening across the system. And really think of me as another node in this decentralized network. Now, the the luxury I have is where I get to obsess and annoy everybody about innovation 24-7, because this is my one myopic focus for something I'm doing in addition to a day job per se. We've heard Fed Chair Powell talk about a digital federal currency at the Fed, and it's working on a report. We know you're probably a part of that. When is that report coming in. What should we expect from it? I don't want to front run it as much, but what's the thinking around digital currency as the Federal Reserve sees it today? Yes. And thank you. We don't want to front run it because then also, Caleb, you would have no reason to call me back, right? So as Chair Powell has stated publicly, the Federal Reserve will be issuing not a report, I would say a discussion document. And I think that ethos of the discussion document is important because the genesis of this journey really is One, the notion of digital currencies or digital assets or the crypto ecosystem at large, it's not net new. My colleagues at the Fed who've been here way longer than I have obviously have been sensing and scanning and listening and learning to the developments within this ecosystem. You know, when I was in the private sector, I had the opportunity to meet and speak with several folks within the Fed to have these dialogues about this topic, right? So not a new thing, but as this ecosystem is evolving, and I know you track this, I mean, I fell into the crypto rabbit hole in 2011. And if you had told me what crypto looks like today is what I thought it was then, not at all. It's moving at a pace that's unprecedented. So now it behooves us to think about how do we go from learning and sensing and scanning to a level of exploration and experimentation, which is already also in works within the Fed, but to really kind of publicly share our perspectives of how we're thinking about this ecosystem, our role in this ecosystem and this innovation that's happening. But also, it's also designed in a way, so we want to unlock a productive dialogue uh, with industry, with communities, with constituents of, you know, across the spectrum who have an interest in this ecosystem as well. How far along is the Fed in testing for the possibility of a central bank digital coin? And what is the status of that effort? You kind of said you're working on it right now, but is there any degree of how far along it is? Yeah, I mean, as you know, part of what's alluring about this ecosystem is it's so multidisciplinary, right? That's why a lot of us nerds have kind of, we came into it and we stuck with it because there's so much to learn and do 
from a financial perspective, a markets perspective, you know, economics perspective, technology perspective, right? There's all these different tentacles. From an experimentation on the technology component, I'm sure our colleagues on the call are aware, you know, our friends at Boston have been actively working with the MIT on really exploring and experimenting with the technical aspects of this. Our friends in Atlanta have also been doing some testing and learning. So I would say I, I, w- I would definitely keep it as, you know, our intent for these experiments is really that it's, you know, sometimes with these technologies, you really need to have a tactile experience to deepen your understanding, but also as policymakers, which I'm not at the Fed, by the way, and I, I should have said this at the beginning, these are Sinana's views and do not represent those of the entire Federal Reserve System, which in a way gives me a little bit more freedom to opine on this. So it's really about how do we deepen our understanding? So as we think about the policy implication, the design consideration, future experimentations that, you know, we're doing it in a prudent and pragmatic way. You said it, you're not a policymaker, you're not a regulator, you're there as the innovation officer, but you know the rules inside the Fed or, or the positions. What is the official position on cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, or is there not a position because it's just not recognized as legal tender? I think I'll underscore what the chair stated recently, which is we're watching this innovation happen in this space and, you know, our mental model definitely is not to ban any of this activity, but to understand, learn, and kind of design the guardrails that are effective and efficient. The horse is out of the barn, so to speak, when you have a MasterCard and a Visa issuing Bitcoin rewards, when you have the biggest online brokers in the world making it possible to invest in crypto or find ways to access investing in crypto through mutual funds or trusts and what have you. We just read about an ETF that might possibly be greenlighted now by regulators. When you look at that happening in the crypto space in particular, how does the Fed view that? Because again, this is not something you endorse. From a Sinana vantage point, I think everything that you just stated, I mean, I think my eyes light up because again, if you had told me 10 years ago, this is where the state of the industry or this nascent space would be, it's like it just seemed unfathomable. I would say even two years ago, pre-pandemic, it would have been unimaginable the scope and scale of adoption that we've seen, especially from an institutional perspective. I have a friend in Silicon Valley who says, you know, if you're not getting yelled out of the room or laughed out of the room, you're not pitching bold enough ideas. Oh, and trust me, in the early days when I was pitching crypto in the traditional finance industry, I yelled out of the room and laughed out of the room quite a bit. But now to see a lot of those institutions leaning in, building on ramps and instruments that make adoption of digital assets simple, fast, and easy, both for retail and for institutional clients, but also the vibrant product suite that's building around it is pretty cool to see. I think from a Fed perspective, again, both as a payments provider, as a regulator, it behooves us to be paying attention and to be understanding. And I think the other thing that I'll I'll share is industry dialogue and co-creation is a big component, what I'm hoping to drive in my role. We'll take another question here. What are your thoughts and the Fed's thoughts on stable coins and what sort of financial backing is acceptable in your opinion and what sort of backing is not? So I'm going to leave the latter question for my friends in the regulatory space who are much more attuned and experts in this. I think stable coins is one component, one of those use cases in the crypto ecosystem that 
really is solving a problem. Sure, people can still look at NFTs and go, why? Why? I mean, not everybody. Now, if you ask my younger brother or my little cousins in my family, like, you know, they're all about NFT. But the majority of people are like, what are we doing here? So there's a lot of things that happen in the crypto ecosystem that make people go, huh, what's the point of this now? I think with stable coins, it's been one of those capabilities that has garnered attention in the sense that, hey, this is solving a problem. And then you've got to ask, why stable coins needed to solve this problem? What is it in our current financial systems? You know, what are the gaps, right? And is this the best way to solve it? And again, I, again, I, I hate to repeat myself and sound less interesting, but I kind of go back to that litmus test of what is the problem we're trying to solve? And is this the right way to do it? But I think, you know, if you look at, again, the adoption, the volume and velocity of stable coin activity, clearly it's making a dent. Again, it's not necessarily the feds to regulate. You have the SEC, you have FINRA, you have other regulators who are involved who have to look at this holistically. How are you working and conversing with those regulators across agencies to examine how you might approach either the launch of a digital currency or the regulation, if necessary, of cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's definitely a it needs to be and should be a coordinated effort. Again, as somebody who came from the industry and met with and worked with and dialogued with, you know, all of our regulatory partners, it's definitely more productive for our industry colleagues. Also, you know, when there is this collaborative effort, I think, you know, agnostic of crypto on many emerging technologies that are going into full scale application, even AI and machine learning and how pervasive it's becoming within fintech and banking, it behooves us to have that connective tissue. And I know the president's working group on this topic is also kind of doing its part in kind of bringing this ecosystem together and to look at it, you know, in a collaborative way. Let's future forecast and let's skate way out to where the puck might be in 10 years. You said we would be holding a piece of glass. We wouldn't think we'd be holding a piece of glass and doing all these things with it all day long, eight hours a day on it. How do you envision the world of payments in 10 years right now. And the Fed's got to be involved in that to a certain degree. Right now, I can hold up my phone and pay for something. Is this the blink of an eye? How are we going to pay for things in a decade? Yeah, I don't know. I've been, uh, I do spend a lot of time reading sci-fi. So my projections may really be out there. But I think ambient computing is something that I was studying and thinking a lot about even before I came into the Fed and has become I think even a bit more top of mind, I think especially after the pandemic, because, you know, and I know it's been overset and overdone, but just the acceleration in terms of adoption, you know, in my private sector role, I spent, as you know, quality time working in Asia, uh, mainland China and Hong Kong, et cetera. And there were times, Caleb, I would come back stateside and I was like, what's going on? Because, you know, everything there was, you know, through your mobile phone, Alipay, Tencent Play. You never, you really didn't need a wallet. And I used to come back stateside. I'm like, wait, you want me to pull out something plastic from my wallet, give it to you and sign this weird piece of paper? Like, you know, it, it's like, wait, what's happening, right? And you see, even during the pandemic, how we completely leapfrogged that experience and how completely digital we've gotten. So I think this notion of ambient computing, which doesn't just apply to payment, but everything we do that it's really, you know, software is the world, as Mark Andreessen famously said, that it all becomes device and hardware agnostic, that when you want to participate in an activity, whether you're listening to a piece of music, or you want to talk to somebody, or you want to transact, that it becomes hardware agnostic through the magic of interfaces and this notion of ambient computing. So that's a rabbit hole, full disclosure, I'm kind of going pretty deep on. I want to hang out with you folks. That sounds like a lot of fun. And you have been so generous 
both in your prior role, but also here and speaking to us. And we so appreciate the time you've given us today. Sunena Tuteja, the Chief Innovation Officer, the first Chief Innovation Officer at the Federal Reserve. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kayla Bing team. Appreciate it. Cheers. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Gerald in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Fear the deer, my friends. That's where the world champs live. Gerald suggests the Defense Production Act for this week's term, and we like that suggestion given the complicated supply chain issues and the insatiable demand for semiconductors. Well, according to my favorite website, the Defense Production Act, DPA, is a law that gives the U.S. president the power to order companies to produce goods and supply services to support national defense. Originally passed in 1950, the law was first used during the Korean War. The law has been adapted over the past seven decades to respond to challenges beyond war preparations, having been enlisted to help the country recover from natural disasters, energy security, public health, and to protect against terrorism. Well, the Biden administration is considering invoking the DPA to force companies in the semiconductor supply chain to provide information on inventory and sales of chips, according to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. The goal is to alleviate bottlenecks that have idled U.S. car production and cause shortages of consumer electronics and to identify companies that might be hoarding those chips to drive up prices. The Defense Production Act would give the president broad authority to direct industrial production to solve this crisis. Now, both the Trump and Biden administrations have each invoked it so far to hasten the production and distribution of coronavirus vaccines and other pandemic-related medical supplies. Good suggestion, Gerald. We'll be sending you some classy Investopedia socks to wear with your championship attire. Thanks for that, Gerald. And thanks to all of our listeners for riding with us this and every week. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Ameriprise Financial. Ameriprise Financial Advisors provide personalized, goal-based financial advice that can help you get on track now and stay on track for tomorrow. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see if you are getting the financial advice you need. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Well, we're going to let Jamie Dimon take us out this week. Here's Dimon, the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the biggest banks in the world, speaking at the Institute of International Finance last week about Bitcoin. Dimon has never been a fan of cryptocurrencies, but he knows his customers are. I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless, but I don't want to be a spokesman. For it. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. I don't think you should smoke cigarettes either. You know, but now it comes into like, okay, that's. JB, now JP Morgan. I our clients are adults, they disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, you know, we, it's hard, we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. Jamie Diamond, keeping it real in a world full of digital revolution. Let's just see how long it takes JP Morgan to offer a Bitcoin ETF or mutual fund of its own. And let's all try to keep it real this week and always. And keep it kind. We'll talk to you again a little further on down the line.